My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st century. Welcome to Episode 7 of Season 3. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Vicky Saunders to the show. In the course of her career as a successful entrepreneur, Vicky came to realise that she, like many female entrepreneurs, was encountering a lot more barriers and obstacles than her male peers in similar situations. At a certain point, as she says in today's interview, she had enough of seeing female entrepreneurs suffering and being overlooked and decided to do something about it by creating SheEO, an extraordinary platform and community for empowering female entrepreneurs. It is an amazing interview, and I would encourage you to listen to it, even if you're thinking, yeah, but I'm not an entrepreneur, so this doesn't really apply to me. Because Vicky's such an inspiring person to be around, and her energy is infectious. And what I realised in the course of this interview is that she's bringing design thinking, creative thinking, to a business challenge which is really a political challenge at root. So she's a shining example of what can be achieved when you bring a new mindset to an old problem. And gentlemen, I would encourage you to listen too. Because Vicky has interesting things to say about the benefits to men as well as to women when female entrepreneurs and women in general are empowered to put more of their talents to use. Before we get to Vicky's interview, I have a few things I'd like to say about how to handle the pressure at the point in your creative career or business when it looks like things are spiralling out of control. If I asked you whether you want to dream big and play full out and achieve amazing things in your career, I'm guessing you'd give me an enthusiastic yes. And if I asked if you're prepared to pay the price in terms of hard work, patience, setbacks and so on, you'd probably answer yes to that as well. But there's one part of the price of success is by definition impossible to predict and almost impossible to prepare for. It's the point where you lose control. Maybe you're an artist applying for a big opportunity, a grant or a book proposal or a residency or something that could be life-changing for you. Or maybe you're putting out a new work that's radically different to anything you've done before. It's risky and it could flop. It feels like your reputation is on the line. Or maybe you're an entrepreneur and you've committed a lot of money and other resources to a new product, or to a big deal where there's a lot of money on the line. Whatever your line of work, 
Events can surprise you. Something goes wrong that you didn't or you couldn't foresee. And you have to deal with the consequences. Maybe someone attacks you or does something to undermine you. Or maybe you're subjected to public criticism and abuse that isn't justified but isn't easy to counter. Maybe the future of a project or even your company depends on a legal case and there's only so much you can do to influence the outcome. I see this kind of situation week in, week out when I'm supporting my coaching clients who are going through them. I'm there for them when they're facing a problem they can't talk about in public or with their colleagues or their employees and sometimes even with their friends and partners because they don't want to unload all the stress on the people closest to them. At this point, I'm a kind of pressure valve for my client. On the one hand, I hate seeing them suffer. But on the other, it's a privilege to be able to help by providing a space to think, to stay centred and to work out their way forward. One of the things I've noticed from years of helping clients with this kind of thing is that if you're a high-level creative, you're usually a very self-sufficient person. You like to take charge and make things happen. Like me, you're probably a bit of a control freak. But by definition, if you have big ambitions and you want to make a big contribution, then you're opening yourself up to something bigger than yourself. You're connecting with a lot of people, or a few people who are very important in your world. And there's a lot at stake for everyone, financially, or in other ways. So at certain points in your career, you will find yourself out of control. You've done everything you can to influence the outcome, and now it's out of your hands. You're the kind of person who hates waiting, but now you have to wait. You're waiting for a gatekeeper to accept or reject your work. You're waiting to see whether your new release is a success or a flop. You're waiting to see whether your product succeeds or whether the big deal goes through and it finally all pays off. You're waiting for the storm of criticism to blow over. Or you're waiting for a legal judgment that will allow you to move forward. At this point, you have to let go of control. You have to let go of what people think of you. Let go of certainty and security. Sometimes for days, sometimes for weeks, or even months on end. So what can you hold on to at a time like this? First of all, it's time to hold on to the big picture. This particular project or incident or legal case, or even this company, might feel like life or death. But in the larger perspective of your life, it's one episode, one challenge, one chapter in your story. Secondly, accept that this is part of the price of success that most people are not willing to pay. In good times, other people will envy you, but they won't suspect what you had to go through to achieve your success. Thirdly, and very importantly, keep doing your work. Keep making something new. In the moment, 
it will give you back your sense of control and satisfaction. And by making something new, you're creating a better future regardless of what happens with the current situation. Fourthly, take care of yourself. Keep up your exercise or your meditation or your bodywork routine. Get a massage or a spa treatment or go for a walk somewhere restful. Eat well and give yourself enough time to sleep properly. Fifthly, spend time with people who know and love you for who you are. Regardless of how much success or failure, wealth or poverty, fame or obscurity you happen to be experiencing right now. You don't need to unload everything onto them. Sometimes the most helpful thing they can do is to distract you and help you have a little fun in the midst of it all. Finally, stay true to yourself and your principles. Don't do anything you'd be ashamed of later. Even if someone is attacking you and doing unspeakable things, don't get dragged down to their level. Because regardless of the outcome, you'll almost certainly live to fight and suffer and win another day. When that day comes, whatever external rewards come with it, the most precious reward will be knowing your character was tested and you were equal to the test. When you set out on a creative career, you won't find any of the usual milestones of success. Unlike your friends who enter traditional jobs with clear routes to promotion, finely calibrated pay grades and impressive job titles, there's no career ladder for people like you and me. And there are no clear markers to indicate your progress. If you compare yourself to your friends, it can be easy to feel left behind as they climb higher and higher from promotion to promotion. It's obvious to all the world that their career is going somewhere. Whereas for you, on a bad day, it can feel like you don't have a clue where you're headed. So how can you chart your course and set yourself up for long-term success as a creative? This is the question at the heart of a short book I've written to accompany this podcast. It's called 21 Insights for 21st Century Creatives. The insights are designed to help you stay true to yourself and your inspiration amid the demands and distractions of 21st century life. They will also help you to win on your own terms by adopting a strategy for success that has nothing to do with the conventional career ladder. And I'm giving you the ebook edition for free. To pick up your free copy of 21 Insights for 21st Century Creatives, go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash 21insights and download it right away. Vicky Saunders is an entrepreneur, mentor, author, and a leading advocate for entrepreneurship 
as a way of creating positive transformation in the world. She has co-founded ventures in Europe, Toronto and Silicon Valley and taken a company public on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Vicky is the founder of SheEO and Radical Generosity, a global initiative to transform how we support, finance and celebrate female entrepreneurs. Faced with a male-dominated startup culture in which only 4% of venture capital financing goes to women, Vicky decided to do something about it. SheEO is hard to describe. It's not exactly a company or even a community. It's an entire ecosystem designed to change the game for female entrepreneurs. Every year, SheEO assembles a group of 500 women called Activators who contribute $1,100 each as an act of radical generosity, creating a perpetual investment fund for female entrepreneurs. All the ventures they fund are for-profit companies, but SheEO is not just about the money. To be eligible for a loan, a venture has to demonstrate that it's helping to create a better world through its business model or its product or its service. And SheEO supports its entrepreneurs with more than money. The 500 activators also help with their expertise and advice, with their professional networks, and also with their buying power as early customers. If you're a female entrepreneur looking for funding and support, SheEO will blow your mind in terms of the opportunities it can unlock. If you're a woman who is passionate about empowering female entrepreneurs, Vicky will introduce you to a radical and exciting new way to invest, support, and collaborate with other women. If you're curious about the process of coming up with radically new and exciting solutions to entrench problems, you'll find this a mind-boggling interview. And whatever your gender, I think you'll be inspired by Vicky's vision of a world where everyone benefits from having more women at the table when it comes to tackling the big challenges we all face. Vicky, what was it that drew you to entrepreneurship in the first place? I actually grew up in a fairly entrepreneurial family. Uh, We had a family farm that was a pretty unique place. And so I was always around uh, this concept of dreaming at the dinner table, coming up with new ideas. But I never really thought of being an entrepreneur until I was in Europe right after the wall fell down. And I remember standing in the square with hundreds of thousands of people in Prague uh, as the tanks roll out one day and the next day everyone was celebrating freedom. And it was absolutely intoxicating. Every single conversation around me was, now that I'm free, I'm going to do this. Now that I'm free, I'm going to do that. And I was like, oh my God, I'm free too. What am I going to do? (laughs) And it's just, (laughs) I I became an entrepreneur over there. It's just kind of a strange thing. But uh, it was my first sort of experience of recognizing how important the environment that you're in impacts what you do. Uh, It just, it, it would just change me completely. Gosh, I mean, that's quite a contrast. I mean, I think a lot of us in the West take capitalism for granted. It's like the weather. Absolutely. But if you were up against, you know, seeing the contrast with a very different system and what it meant to people to suddenly have that opened up, what did that 
tell you specifically, okay, there's, there's freedom in, in general of, of, of lots of things, but what specifically did you get from that about the value of entrepreneurship? Well, for me, it was just, I mean, the concept of freedom just really hit me at a kind of DNA level. Like by the time I was in my 20s, I had all these layers of expectations from other people on top of me, mm-hmm. right? These are the kinds of jobs to get. These are the kinds of schools to go to. These are the people you hang out with. This is how much you should be paid. Uh, and entrepreneurship wasn't really cool back then. And then all of a sudden, I was in this place where people were reinventing themselves at all stages, right? So 60-year-olds who had been like shoveling coal were now you know, doing the thing that they had wanted to do and 20 year olds and, you know, the students were part of that whole change. And so this concept of like, what is it that you want to create in the world, being able to like reinvent yourself on the spot. And this is the mindset shift that is sort of core to what I think helps you be more entrepreneurial is like, if anything was possible, if you were surrounded by the right conditions, what might you do? if it was possible, right? And so if you can get yourself into that space, that's the place where I think entrepreneurship gets born from. And if we can stay with your own journey for a little mm-hmm. bit, because I know one thing we want to come on to is CEO and, and the big picture of women and entrepreneurship. But I'm guessing that, you know, what a lot of us experience as statistics or, or headlines is some things that you experienced firsthand. I mean, what did you discover maybe good, the the positive in entrepreneurship, but also the challenges, particularly for a woman as an entrepreneur? Yeah, well, I think uh, I would just go more general uh, overall. I think being a woman, period, in society (laughs) is like super challenging. Uh, And and I noticed that at a very early age. Like I came, I grew up in a family full of boys. I, you know, didn't think I was being treated any differently. I went off to university. I took this course called Women in Literature, which of course was taught by a man. And, uh, and, and every single part of the book, you know, all the books that we were reading, they were deconstructing, you know, how women were taught or how, how we portray women in society, et cetera. And by the end of that course, I was like, oh my God, I'm oppressed. Why didn't anyone tell me? <laughs> and I kind of came home and I started, you know, pointing out everything. And then very quickly, uh, you know, whenever I pointed out how I was being treat- treated differently, I was sort of sidebarred. Like, mm-hmm. oh, come on, take a downer, relax. That's not really what I meant. Uh, it's not really different. And so this sort of concept of having your reality, what you experienced denied around you was a super confusing thing. And all I knew is I wanted to be really successful and do something. So I just put my head down and I'm like, okay, well, no one else needs to be complaining about this. Maybe I'll just ignore it. Um, and I, you know, and, and as I went through various companies, I started initiatives I was part of, um, I. I kept seeing those things, but pointing them out did not help me advance what I was trying to do. So I just kind of buried it um, until I hit 50 and then I lost my mind. (laughs) Um, When I, you know, when I got to this stage where I just realized like, this is actually happening. This is holding us back. It's part of the design of the system we're in. We need to create a new system. There's, I just don't want to live in a world where only 50% of the population reach their potential. And so there's a bunch of, you know, stories along the way that were kind of painful for me that woke me up uh, even more each time. But, um, you know, it's only right now that we're able to kind of talk about all this stuff. First, for the last couple of decades, it wasn't something that was in the water supply. So just to help us all get the context here, in one of your articles, you say that women are chronically underfinanced, undersupported 
and under-celebrated in the business world. Yeah. And I think a lot of us can intuitively agree with this, but for you, what are some of the most important facts and implications? Yeah, so I mean, 4% of venture capital goes to women, less than 1% of corporate procurement. So when companies buy products and services from other companies to keep their business going, that's procurement, less than 1% of the companies that they buy from are women-owned. Like, it's just insane. And FYI, we are not a niche market, women. We are 50% of the population, <laughs> right? So uh, it, this is super crazy. What are we doing here? Um, and I, you know, I think it's partly because the world that we're living in and the structures that we're living in and the systems that we're living in, we're, women weren't at the table to design those. So a small, small example, which has huge implications, is like, how can we possibly still not have childcare sorted out? Like, that is just crazy. 50% of the population is out there working and there's no access to childcare. So it just gets layered on top of your job. So, you know, if women were at the table, we would have sorted these things out so that everybody could be, uh, you know, equally working and performing and reaching their potential. And, you know, what are the implications for, for creativity, you know, out, even outside of business? Yeah, I just, well, first of all, I think that, you know, We've learned a lot from the latest neuroscience research uh, and looking at different learning styles over the past few years that women tend to see things holistically. Uh, and mm -hmm. so we look at the full picture, the whole process, uh, and men see things a little bit more myopically, like they're more focused in on something. And so there's that, it, like the two of those things together can create a whole. I think it's really important. And so if you have both women and men at the table with their unique ways of looking at things, I think we get a more whole design that can work to include everyone in society. So there's that part is huge. I mean, we see the data is that when you have women on your board in your senior management positions, you outperform companies that don't. There's just so much data proving this. And I, the thing that's really stopping this from happening, despite having the data, is that we have unconscious bias, all of us, in the way that we're brought up. And we're not used to seeing women in power. And when you don't see women in senior positions, uh, you don't necessarily think you can be one of those people. And so this whole cycle perpetuates. But right now we're at this deep moment of disruption and we, are, we need a new way. Like everything that's around us, we made up and it's not working. So let's make up a new way. And I want to do that with men and women at the table. Okay. And I think this is a really important point because it, it, it's not just a women's issue. It's, it's everyone. Absolutely. It, yeah. I mean, it, it's to say it's just about advancement of women. Yeah, that's right. That's just, that's important. But there's even, even if you're going to be completely self-centered about it, men benefit too. I think we're living in a world that's not working for anybody, right? We're all working ourselves to death such long yeah. hours, super stressed out. It's not working for men or women. Men want to come home and see their kids too. Uh, and so work, the workday is just getting completely insane. And on top of this, we have um, a mindset, which I think is really uh, limiting us, which is like the dominant mindset of the world right now is winner takes all. It's bet it all on red yeah. for the one to win. And that has now led us to a world where five people have the same wealth as three and a half billion people. Right? This is just a massive challenge. The inequality is off the charts and getting worse because of this mindset of winner takes all. And all of our capital in the marketplace is out chasing a unicorn, Uber, to go win the whole market. And then you know, the 17 people that invested in that will be the ones who fill up their pockets uh, and the rest won't. And so this, is, this mindset is really blocking us. And I think if we step back and said, how can we define success much more broadly? It's not just about one winner, but what if there's all various forms of success? 
Uh, and so that's, I think, one of the big challenges that we're facing. And the other is, you know, you have to work 24-7 to be successful. That's a narrative that no longer needs to hold true. Let's change that. So I, I really am thinking at the mindset level of what are those big things we need to change and rethink and challenge our assumptions. And there's a quote in your book that I love. Everything is broken. What a great time to be alive. Yeah, I know. This is the entrepreneurial mindset. <laughs> can you, I mean, I love the positivity in that because yeah. you, you can say, okay, everything's broken and people say, well, you're just pointing out problems. Yeah. But tell us why that means it's great to be alive at this point in history. Absolutely. I mean, so I'm an opportunistic kind of thinker. Uh, I'm super hopeful and excited about the future. And so when I see all these structures falling apart, uh, all of this redesign that's needed, that for me is just is like screams opportunity. You know, so if you're a creator or a maker or an entrepreneur, this is your nirvana right this moment. There is like, I couldn't walk a block without finding 25 things that I want to redesign. <laughs> uh, and so to me, it's just like this huge, huge opportunity. I mean, you can stay on the negative side and just go, oh my God, it's so bad. Inequality is a nightmare, but that just gives you a huge opportunity. Okay, great. Let's go change it because it's not working for anyone. And the person who comes up the middle with an interesting new idea uh, can really make a dent in the universe. I think it's just super exciting when things are falling apart. <laughs> I know I'm a bit strange, but like, it really is fun. Like, it's a great time. So can you give us an example, either from your own experience or another business that you've observed where an entrepreneur is really saying, okay, this is broken. Let's have fun with it. Let's, let's make it better. Well, so one of our ventures, uh, Barbara Alink, uh, has in, rethought the walker in the wheelchair. So she was walking through the, um, far, she was walking through a park with her mom. Her mom's in her 80s and her mother looked at somebody who was sort of hunched over on a walker and said, over my dead body, will I ever use one of those? And Barb is a designer and she's like, oh, that's really interesting. So why is it designed that way? And she sort of started to dig into it. And then she found that 50% of people who are using wheelchairs can still move their legs, but they are put into this device. This is really the only device if you're not stable, if you've had a stroke, if you have Parkinson's or MS, you get put into this and then you deteriorate and have a downward spiral even more because you're not moving, right? Yeah, yeah. And then 80% of people who are in wheelchairs or using walkers are depressed because all of a sudden they went from this you know, healthy individual to losing some mobility and everybody looks down at them. Literally, like you look down yeah. a level at yeah. someone on a wheelchair. So she stepped back and said, how could I redesign that for dignity? And also, how could it be the coolest thing that everybody would want? Like, what a great, you know, design. <laughs> so she created what looks like a giant adult tricycle. You, the the uh, seat is basically keeps you at eye level. So you're still at eye level with people. So they're not yeah. looking down at you. And you move it with your feet. So there's no pedals. So think giant, bright yellow adult tricycle where you stay at eye height and you move it with your feet. And so people who are now using this, so someone who has Parkinson's is always shaking, has a real... They, they have a really hard time with mobility devices. Now they sit on this, it stabilizes their core. They can move their legs and build up their muscle and they're walking down the street with you. Like amazing. So that's an example of somebody just rethinking this. And this can have massive implications all over the world. It needs to be used in every market with an aging population. So, okay, let's see. Let's make sure that we get a, a picture or a video or some media so people can actually see Barbara's Walker in action. So, I'll, I'll yeah. Add. So it's BeAlinker.com. Yeah. Okay, great. And I'll make sure we add that link in the show notes as well. Great. So that's a beautiful example. Just walking along and seeing a problem. I mean, 
so I'm a writer. If I'm reading a text and there's a spelling or punctuation mistake, or if something isn't quite phrased very well, I just yeah. want to fix it. I get irritated. I get that itch. And I think being an entrepreneur is a bit like that, except your book is the whole world. Totally. You, know, you, you walk around and you can see things. And, oh, that, that could be better. That could be fixed. Absolutely. And I think it's, I mean, and, it, and it's, for most people, it's not the whole world because I believe there's something that each of us are here to do. Uh, there's a mastery that we have. There's a certain mm-hmm. lens that we look through. We don't all see the same world. I can walk down the street and see something completely different than my yeah. husband. And so the opportunity is when you see something that makes you crazy, that's yours. That's yours to fix or to get involved in or deal with. Uh, and so for me, you know, there's lots and lots of things outside the spectrum that I see uh, that are not mine. They're, they're not my pure passion. Uh, but I, you know, this whole thing of women and women being funded and how to support a different way forward in the world is something I've been obsessed with my whole life. But I spent literally two decades avoiding doing anything women only because I saw what happened every time I pointed it out. I was sidebarred. I was reduced. Uh, and so I just didn't mention it until I kind of had this sort of epiphany moment where I couldn't stand it any longer. <laughs> and so I started CEO. Yeah. Tell us about the epiphany moment. So I, I'm an entre- like I'm a mentor. I absolutely mm-hmm. love, as soon as I learn something, I want to share it. And so I've mentored over a thousand entrepreneurs in the last couple of decades. And I was working with this phenomenal young woman who had a bit of a rocket ship of a company. It was just totally taking off. She was doing really well. And then I started to see all of the sort of sharks Mm -hmm. (laughs) start to surround her and go, okay, this is going to be a big deal. And so they started poking at her. And the same thing had happened to me. I had a company that uh, grew very rapidly and, and went public. And part of the thing, so they were like, you know, in the next round, you're probably not going to be the CEO. We'll bring in a guy who knows what he's doing, who has domain expertise, because it was her first time entrepreneuring. Mm -hmm. And just all these little things. And I thought, oh my God, this is exactly what happened to me 20 years ago. And I went home furious and I was talking to my husband and I'm like, I just can't do this. We cannot have another generation go through the same thing that I had to go through, not on my watch. And so then I stepped back and thought, if I was going to try and solve this challenge, how would I do it? And there's, it's a kind of, it's a holistic, massive culture change problem, which is we're not going to fund more women innovators unless women start writing checks. Um, because we've had women innovators out there coming to male investors and that hasn't worked in the past. We fund things that we have experience with that looks like us. We've just seen the data on that. And so we need women to invest. And so how do you get women to start investing? And it just became this huge, uh, circular design challenge that I have worked on for many years. Okay. And I love the fact that you're framing it as a design challenge because, you know, a lot of us look at these big monolithic issues or they they look monolithic and think, well, what can little old me do? And yet what you've done with CEO, it's it's actually really hard for me to to describe it because it's a very new kind of organization. I don't think we've got a category yet that we can assign it to. Maybe you could explain what CEO is and how it works. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, why don't I just walk you through a little bit of the, the pieces that got put together? So one thing was, you know, with this winner takes all mindset and, you know, bet it all on red, uh, capital is, I think, very inefficiently used, right? Like we'll put billions and billions of dollars into a company. Uh, and if it fails, uh, you know, we've wasted so much money. And if it, uh, wins, quote unquote, then somebody makes a lot of money. And so is there a more efficient use of capital? That's one thing. And then this new model of crowdfunding 
came in in the last few years. And that kind of broke open the dam for me to understand how to deal with this. So we have this model of 500 women come together in each region. They contribute $1,100 each. So it's a small amount of money. You sort of dip your toe in to get engaged. That money's aggregated together in a pool. And then the 500 women go online and they vote for the companies that they're most passionate about that have applied. They're woman-owned and woman-led and revenue-generating. They're not early, early startup. And uh, they can all answer how they're creating a better world. So the 500 women go online, look at these applications, say, I love this, I'd buy it, or I'd recommend it to my friends. I think it's going to change the world and I think it's going to export and and has ability to scale. And then those companies get a 0% interest loan and then they get 500 women on their team to help them. So it's literally leveraging all these resources. It's super crazy, right? If you're one of these entrepreneurs that gets picked, you go from like total scarcity to like, you have 500 women. What do you need? Ask us and we'll help you. So you're one step removed from pretty much everything you need to grow your business. And so we create this very safe environment. We call it radical generosity. Imagine if you were surrounded by radically generous women, how would it change you? And that sort of serves to embolden these entrepreneurs and to move them from scarcity to abundance and to realize that they have what they need. And it's kind of overwhelming to be selected by 500 women. You know, like you're sort of toiling away doing what you're doing. You've had a lot of people sort of tell you it's not going to work or you don't have the right skills or you're not good enough. All that stuff that happens as an entrepreneur, lots of no's. And all of a sudden you just get this giant yes tunnel around you. (laughs) It's pretty cool. That is quite a vote of confidence. Yeah. And it does, it lifts you up, right? When, when someone, if you think, oh, I just designed this, like what, you know, like a lot of us do, we don't really realize what we have. And then when 500 people go, you, you're the one and they stand up standing ovation and they clap when you walk on stage, it just, it changes things. I mean, I'm just thinking just purely in terms of the frame and the feeling I'm getting from this, you know, the, the TV program over here in the UK, it's called Dragon's Den. Yeah. I think in the yeah. States, it's Shark Tank. I yeah. mean, you know, dragons and sharks bearing exactly. down on you. That's that's the kind of, I mean, I know it's entertainment, popular culture, but it's actually quite an apt metaphor for for the kind of cutthroat world of entrepreneurship. And this is, it, it's got such a different feeling, right? It really, it's completely the opposite of Dragon's Den. Uh, it's called Dragon's Den in Canada as well. I mean, I even just think of that metaphor a den for dragons or a tank for mm-hmm. sharks. It's like literally you're, you're a caged animal performing, right, for, mm-hmm. for the investor. And so, you know, think like that person sitting with their arms crossed on stage saying, prove to me that you can get me a huge return on my money. And I think like flip that around. We need innovators desperately, so much more than those people sitting on stage with their money. Like what's the use of capital to create a better world? And so we flip that around and we go, oh my God, we love what you're doing can we help you? As opposed to you prove to me how you can do this on your own, right? It's just a completely different frame. And this phrase, a better world, did you say that part of the, you know, the application process when the entrepreneurs are going in Mm -hmm. to CEO is that they need to say how their company is going to make it a better world? Yes. So there's a, you know, I don't really use the word social, uh, a social component to it, but that's really Mm -hmm. what it is. I mean, it's, you have to say, you know, how does your uh, business, your products or services, or how you run your business create a better world? So you need to be able to articulate that. So all of the ventures get selected, have a very strong social impact as well as financial impact. Again, and this is against a lot of the assumptions that we have about entrepreneurship and capitalism, that it's all about money. It's all about winning. It's not about the bigger picture. Well, we need to redefine winning. 
right? I mean, it's it's in this super broken old model. Uh, and I think the the real, again, go to the design challenge and the creativity piece of this. From a very, very early age, I was obsessed with how do I do good and make money at the same time? And when I was growing up, you know, 40 years ago, when I was just getting started and sitting in high school, that was considered crazy thinking, right? Go make money yeah. and then give it away. And I'm like, well, I want to do both at the same time because I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> like, I'm not obsessed with with making as much money as possible. I'm obsessed with like having a huge impact, deep meaning, getting up every day, feeling like I'm making a difference, and I'd like to pay my mortgage. Thank you very much. So, that that is a cool, and I think the next generation that's coming along really lives in that space too. We're at a more of a blended model now, and not an either or. It's a both and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so picking up on the CEO story, so. An entrepreneur gets picked, gets these 500 votes of confidence, gets the interest-free loan. Well, what happens next? I mean, how how does 500 advisors not become a cacophony? Yeah, I was worried about that too. But, you know, all of these women are really busy and they're not all excited about everything that you're doing. And uh, they only put their hands up when they have something that they can really contribute. So what happens is uh, the entrepreneurs come together they divide up the money. We have a unique process to do that. They come together for a weekend. They meet their coaches. They have these world-class coaches that help them throughout the course of the year. They meet each other for the first time. They go deep. They um, understand each other's negotiating styles. And then on the final day of our retreat, we say to them, there's $500,000 on the table to divide up over to you to do that. We're going to leave the room in a minute. Uh, you have two rules. One is you can't give it all to one. So no winner takes all. And you can't divide it up evenly because that's too easy. (laughs) And so they have to figure out what to do. And it is so awesome. It's so awesome to witness. They literally leverage that money and they make it go so much farther than you can imagine. And they help each other like, oh, you don't really need that. I've got that. I can help you with that. Or I know someone who does that cheaper or whatever. And they just, they figure out how to maximize the impact of that money for individually and collectively because we expect 100% payback rate. And so that we do that first, uh, which is always really fascinating to observe uh, or to hear how it ends up. And then they get into uh, two coaching calls a month and a regular ask every month of the women in the network. So, you know, on any given time, I'm looking for someone to help me with rebranding my company. Does anyone have any experience in that? The activators, the women who contribute capital in our network respond in real time. Within 24 hours, the ventures get what they need when they do these asks. It goes into their inbox, they reach out and it's, we don't do the matching with EEO. It's all just, you know, the technology and people hands, hands up, organic, they find each other. And obviously while respecting people's confidentiality, what, I mean, can you say anything about the kind of asks and the kind of responses that you typically get? Yeah. I mean, there's literally everything from, I'm going to raise a follow on round. I need some help with my financials. Is someone good at that? Can someone help me with framing? One of our ventures did go on Dragon's Den from a, for a marketing perspective and, you know, someone right. said, yeah, and someone said to her, <laughs> you know, because uh, she wanted to get the word out about because it's a great market place to do marketing, right? Um, yeah. She wasn't exactly yeah. going to accept the deal. But one of the women in our network is a TV producer. And she said, this is all about TV. This isn't about getting the money, right? This is about get, do, making a mm-hmm. commercial. So she coached her on how to do that. And it was brilliant. And she said it really changed and it massively increased her sales. So having expertise from all different areas and being able to reach out to that and have someone come in uh, who's passionate about your business, wants to help, and has experience in the space. It's amazing. The process sounds absolutely mind-blowing. It's really different. Yeah. (laughs) Very trust-based. Can you give us an example or two of what people have achieved as a result of the program? Yeah. So 
you know, uh, one of our ventures has breathable food wrap. So all of our food wrap is plastic and toxic. And if you wrap food, it starts to die immediately. So if you wrap an avocado, Mm -hmm. it turns brown in plastic wrap. When you wrap an avocado with a Bego, A-B-E-E-G-O, when you wrap it with a Bego, it stays green for four days. A lemon lasts for 10 days when it's cut in half. So it's literally like putting the rind back on the food. And she had this unique Mm -hmm. insight. So uh, when women, I mean, first of all, when we rolled out in California, all I had to do was say avocado stays longer. And everyone's like, what? Where do I get it? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so, you know, from her going and trying to find traditional financing and people looking at her going, what, you're going to take on Saran Wrap? Good luck with that lady. To every woman going, oh my God, where do I buy it? It lasts 18 months. It's washable, reusable. Whoa. Uh, and it keeps my food fresh. So she's she's gone to market and exported to new countries and new regions because the women in our markets uh, around the world are taking her there. They're talking about it. They tell their local suppliers and they get her into stores. And so the idea with this model is that we get to a million women globally as soon as possible from all different regions around the world. And so if you are in the UK and you get selected and you want to go to market in Singapore or Mumbai or Auckland, New Zealand, or New York, you plug into the women in those markets, the radically generous women to help you go to market. So it's a very quick way of spreading your idea around the world. Right. So, I mean, it, this is the, the multidimensional thing you were talking about yeah. earlier on, being able to see things holistically. It's not, I mean, obviously the money part of it is pretty amazing, but there's so many other dimensions to this. Yeah. I mean, my personal experience, I, you know, as having been an entrepreneur over and over my whole life, uh, money is always a challenge. Uh, and I have experienced that, but really the larger issue is access to markets, access to customers and networks. That is really super tough. And as, especially as a female entrepreneur getting started and like, how do you find that person who knows the six people at the top of every company you want to find, right? Like, how do you do that when you're at the early stage of your career? And so to, to plug into a network that can get you there sooner in a relationship based way. So one of our ventures, um, was just getting started. She had a cool tech company and she was trying to get into some of these corporations and several women in our network are completely connected. And these are their friends that are senior execs at all these companies. They called them up and go, Hey, one of our CEOs has this wicked idea. We meet with her and they're like, of course, because they're friends with this person. And she walks in and she nails every meeting. Um, so again, like, how do you get that access that the network piece of it and the early customer piece of it to me is actually way more important than the money. That is huge. And that reminds me of another one of my previous guests on the podcast, Patricia Van Den Acker, who runs the Design Trust in London, because she said, whatever your field, there are 50 people. And if they knew your name, your success would be on another level. So she said Mm -hmm. her challenge was to to say to people, work out who those 50 people are and start making sure they know your name. Well, this sounds like a a fantastic way of accelerating that process. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we found in our, you know, we've got six cohorts now uh, around the world, uh, just at a pretty early stage of this model. But when you get selected by these 500 women and you are on stage and recognized for that, you start to get recognized all over the place, right? Like the, the community and the marketplace considers that you've been validated. And so our ventures have gone on to win Startup Entrepreneur of the Year, uh, and different awards because uh, it, it like, gives them profile very quickly at a very early stage of their career. And that's really exciting. If we can start to to showcase some of these innovations that we think have game-changing potential, that's that's a huge success moment for us. So 
continuing the cycle with CEO. So you give people a loan, they repay it. What happens to the money at that point? So as the money is repaid, which is 20% per year, because we, uh, when you get your loan, so imagine you're getting a $100,000 loan, you pay it back in 20 equal installments of $5,000. So once mm-hmm. a quarter, $5,000 is coming back. So at the end of a year, 20% of that money is paid back. We loan that out again. So in Canada, for example, we've done three rounds of this. And so we just did not, uh, announced on Monday uh, seven new ventures with 500 women being the contributors. And so we had an extra $200,000 because money was paid back from the first year and the second year cohort. So that added two companies. So with this, we have this concept of a per- perpetual fund. It's a little bit of a different idea. So with each year, this money just gets loaned out, paid back and loaned out again. We keep it in flow. And so this idea of having a perpetual fund where the money just keeps rolling forward, you make your commitment of $1,100 as an activator, but that money just keeps going forward forever and ever for your daughters, your granddaughters, your great-granddaughters, your nieces. So that's the radical part of radical generosity. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's not just the fact that it's this person making a gift. It's, It's how far that gift can go. It just keeps going forward. Yeah. And it's, it's not a grant to the entrepreneurs, right? It's a loan. And so this also uh, brings in a pretty interesting other design element from indigenous culture that I learned, which is um, when, just a quick story, when the, the white man came over to Turtle Island, which we now call North America, um, mm-hmm. what the indigenous people was, they gave us a gift because that's how they create relationships. They give you this gift and then that creates a tie between us. And what we did with the gifts is we held on to them. And they were confused by this. They're like, why are you, because gifts are meant to be held onto for a while and then passed on to others because then you keep the relationship going and you extend the relationship. So there's actually, you know, an ongoing benefit of this relationship. We all get in relationship together, but we held onto those gifts. And so the indigenous people came back and asked for it back, which is where this crazy derogatory term of Indian giver came from, you know, giving a gift and then asking for it back. And, you know, this accumulation culture that we have in North America, which is spread around the world, has led to this world where only five people have the same wealth as three and a half billion. And so we took that and said, well, what if money stayed in flow? Because money is currency. It's energy. It's meant to be in flow, not Mm -hmm. held in the hands of five people around the world. And so this is totally designed with the wisdom from our indigenous cultures to keep money in flow and it benefits all. And again, just to underline, it's completely different to the, the typical model, which is venture capital, which is basically the Hollywood model. You, you fund 10 and maybe one will be a hit. Yeah. And if you waste the money on the others, well, so what? You made your money. Honestly. I like, mean, it, doesn't, I, yeah. it doesn't for you wasted millions of dollars. It, just, it is so insane to me. It's always felt insane to me. You know, to me, this is like just to use a very basic metaphor. It's like picking one of your children, right? Bet it all on Susie. <laughs> Let's bet it all on her. Forget the rest of them. They're losers, right? They're not going to make it. Uh, And so we don't do that, right? We have multiple definitions of success in relationship-based world. And so not everyone is going to perform to the same. And so for me, it's like, and even in our ventures, in our last cohort, the range of capital was between 30,000 and 200,000, right? Some people didn't need money as much. They needed the network. Others really needed it. And the bang for the buck they were going to get was so much higher. And so they divided the money up to reflect that. And so that's a whole, that's a really interesting way of thinking about things. It's different than what we do right now. You know, another theme that I'm picking up from you, and and I want to stress, I think this is a positive theme is, is anger Mm -hmm. that you experienced anger when you realized what was happening to you as a woman Mm -hmm. 
and later just just as a woman per se, also an entrepreneur. And then the straw that broke the camel's back was when you saw it happening to your proteges. Mm-hmm. And yet you had a tremendously creative response to it. I mean, I always remember when I was a psychotherapist doing my training, I was told, well, yeah, we think of anger as being a negative emotion, but actually it's about justice. And if you come up with a creative response to that, you don't have to start yelling or attacking or losing your temper. If you come up with a creative response, anger can be a real force for good. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I never personally change unless I have to hit my head against the wall, right? Like I have to get in a lot <laughs> before I'll change anything for myself. Uh, and this, you know, I've, I really, this has been a series of, you know, aha moments over the last 25 years, like learning about different pieces to make this thing work. And it was, it was really sort of, you know, crowdfunding piece and crowd selection. Like there's so many different elements to this that needed to click in. It's like a jigsaw puzzle in a way to get me there. But, uh, you know, I, anger wasn't an option for me. I'm not the kind of person who's going to sit and stew uh, in a circle, mm-hmm. but I did have to go through a lot of, you know, those elements to figure out how to get to the solution. Um, and I, you know, again, one of the things that we notice about entrepreneurs is persistence. And I'm, you know, if nothing else, I'm a deeply persistent person. I will not give up on things. So. And also as a counterbalance to that, one other lovely quote I liked from your book was, it doesn't have to be hard. Hmm. Yeah. Did you say something about that? Yeah. People I don't get this very often. <laughs> They're like, what do you mean it doesn't have to be hard? It's so hard. Uh, well, so what I find anyway is when it's when your solution that you come up with is complex, difficult, challenging, uh, it's probably not the right solution. And so I remember sitting down with a group of entrepreneurs at my dinner table and they had just their business had just failed and they were trying to think up a new thing. And someone said, let's find something really hard to solve. And I said, why? And, and they looked at me and they're like, what do you mean? Why? And I said, why don't you find something really easy that's easy for you to solve? And they looked at me like, <laughs> whoa, that's such a crazy thing to say. <laughs> but, you know, it's that, it's that reframing piece. Like there's so with CEO, I, I kept thinking all the way through whenever something felt like it was going to be hard to do. Then I was like, OK, not there yet, because my experience mm-hmm. has been when it's right, it, it happens with flow and ease. And when it's not, it is super painful. And so, you know, for example, last year, we had a really tough year with core funding. Every sponsor we went out to, everyone said no. It was just like a giant year of no in every way. Um, and so I struggled through that a lot. And I'm like, okay, I guess it's not the right time. But wow, it's really hard when it's not the right time. And then this year started off and everything was a yes. And it just happened with ease. And so I've learned over the years that timing is everything. Sometimes it's just not the right moment. It may be a great idea, but it's not the right time. And so paying attention to the energy that gets attached to whatever you're doing is something that I, I follow the energy. That's one of my terms. If it's, you know, if it's block, 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 then, you know, you have to find flow around that, like rocks in a stream, you know, water going around it. Um, if you react to the blocks, uh, it really slows you down and it's not the right design. You know, I'm listening to you. I, I could be listening to a poet with that description <laughs> oh. because I think, you know, I, I'm a, a writer and I work with a lot of artists and creatives and it's very, very similar. The The points where we're creating the most value are those times that we're in flow. Absolutely. You know, it, there's an effortless quality to it. It's, it's not always easy to get to that point, but that's, you know, the, the part that you enjoy where you feel the ease, the effortlessness, that's nearly always a sign that, okay, we're, we're breaking through into something good here. Absolutely. 
And I mean, we are all energy, right? So tuning into that, being surrounded by that. And I, you know, I do consider business to be, I've considered myself to be a creative thinker. And I, I kind of feel like a bit of a business artist, right? Like this is pure creativity, yeah. figuring out solutions yeah. to major challenges we're facing. That's not happening sitting, you know, crunching numbers. We're not going to solve the world's problems by crunching numbers. It requires a much more deepened connection into our humanity uh, and understanding people's intentions and understanding behaviors and understanding what unlocks people's souls and connection to each other. The, that the empathy component will be the heart of all major change in the world. It's not going to be happening in an MBA class sitting, you know, with your spreadsheet open from my perspective. <laughs> and maybe one last thing. You also say that in the book that it's a post-hero world. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the post-hero world. What, yeah, well, what's... I think we're stuck. We're so stuck on this, like one person changes everything which is so not true. You know, behind whoever mm. creates something, there is an army of people, a parade of amazing supporters with all kinds of different skill sets that made that happen. But we're so obsessed with the one. Um, and that's just not, you know, that, that's a very like sort of competitive lens. One person, you know, steps over everybody to get to the top. And that's a very old hierarchical model. We're moving much more to a distributed networked world with multiple pods of people connecting together. And it's all about collaboration. Like the biggest human challenge that we have is how do we live together? How do we collaborate together? And that is, uh, I think, a much more feminine, I'm not saying a woman-only quality. We all have masculine and feminine mm-hmm. traits. Yeah, yeah. But the, the feminine of understanding how to collaborate. And after our first... Um, the first cohort went through the dividing up of the capital. One of the women said she really got that. She'd only been in a competitive atmosphere. And she's like, collaboration is the new competition. This, how do we work together and come together to elevate all? That's a great challenge. And speaking of challenges, mm. this is the point in the interview where I like to ask my guests to set the listener a challenge, something that they can go away and do or start doing in the next seven days that relates to the themes that we've been talking about. Yeah. So I think, you know, one of my, the things that I think is really a game changer is to go home and clean your closets, your not literal closets, but your closets of people who bring you down. I think it's extremely Mm -hmm. challenging to reach your potential when you're surrounded by people who are telling you to stay the way they are, that you are, who are, you know, like I have enough voices in my head trying to stop me from doing things. I don't need anyone else. (laughs) Right. Thank you very much. But like, (laughs) goodbye. Uh, yeah, exactly. (laughs) See you later. And so this, um, being very, um, being precious about who you surround yourself with. And so this, the concept that, you know, we have at CEO is imagine being surrounded by radically generous women and then imagine being radically generous to yourself. I think we're, you know, it's, it's very Mm -hmm. easy to be hard on yourself, but the voices that are negative in your head are not for you. It's the voices that are positive and loving and lifting you up. That's what you need to be listening to. And so for me, it's pay attention to who you're surrounded by and how you speak to yourself and how they speak to you, because that will really determine who you can be in the world. Thank you. That is a great challenge. And so last but not least, where can people go to find out more about you and CEO and and the rest of your work? Um, Our website is CEO, S-H-E-E-O dot world, CEO dot world. And we're on all social channels as well at CEO.world. Great. And obviously, I'll make sure that's included in the show notes again. Vicky, thank you so much for your 
radical generosity this morning. Mm. And I'm, I'm sure people found it as, as inspiring to listen to as I did. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the 21st Century Creative, hosted by me, Mark McGuinness. You can find the notes for today's show with more information about my guest and links to the sites we mentioned, as well as all the archived episodes at 21stCenturyCreative.fm. If you enjoyed the show, then I hope you'll subscribe in iTunes, and I'm always grateful for your reviews, and also for sharing the show with your friends and followers. If you'd like to have the 21st Century Creative Foundation course delivered to you for free, giving you 26 lessons of advice and worksheets on carving out an original creative career, you can sign up at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. And if you are an experienced creative interested in getting my help as a private coaching client, you can learn about how I help my clients at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash coaching. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again soon.